Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with me, Johnny Langton. According to the Brute Chronicle of Norman history, against this man, no one could prevail except God himself. The skillful, intelligent monarch championed not crushing warfare and submission, but calming, shrewd diplomacy to meet his objectives. The Lion of Justice presided over a period of peace in England and relative peace in Normandy. The overhaul of justice and finance in England and the wisdom to secure a wife and heir meant a period of stability and progression. However, the nature of kingship and volatility of medieval life meant control over his biggest objective was dashed. This is Henry I. Henry was born in 1069, the youngest son of William the Conqueror. From a young age, Henry was a calming and perceptive figure, much in contrast to his belligerent predecessors. He was nicknamed Beauclerk due to his high intellect. This intellect was not lost or wasted in the manner of his operation when king. His intellect was something he valued. He once said an uneducated king is like a crowned ass. He was probably the most educated monarch since Alfred the Great and set a precedent for kings thereafter. When his father William the Conqueror died. His eldest brother Robert was given the Duchy of Normandy and William Rufus the Crown of England, leaving no land for Henry but 5,000 marks of silver. While Henry quarrelled with his brothers from time to time, it was in the shadows where Henry mostly lay. Though he would later be famed for the art of a truce, from time to time a flair for brutality would surface. In 1090, at the quelling of a rebellion in Rouen, he dealt with the rebel leader with defenestration. From a tower, he threw him out of the window. The death of William Rufus, King William II, in the New Forest in 1100, was not seen as suspicious until centuries later. Even now, most historians think Henry was guilty of nothing more than opportunism. His barons were sent in disarray to secure their land against would-be rebels. Henry raced to Winchester and claimed the crown of England. But where was Robert, the eldest son of William? He was now set to miss out on the English crown for the second time to a younger sibling. When he heard the news, he was returning to Normandy from the Crusades, where he had been a triumphant and well-respected commander. Robert stayed in Normandy, for now. Back in England, Henry had the intricate task of sweeping up the dissenting parties, disgruntled barons, the exiled churchmen, and the divisive courtmen of William Rufus. 
whilst also cementing his own claim to the throne. How could Henry's claim be stronger than that of his elder brother? Henry claimed prothriogeniture. This means born in the purple. While the conqueror had had multiple sons, Henry was the only one born after the Norman conquest and in England. Henry was the only son born of a king, born in the purple. In the same manner upon the death of Edward the Confessor and Harold Godwinson's rapid coronation, Henry was crowned within three days, perhaps aware of the tenuousness of his claim. So urgent was the coronation, he didn't wait to recall Anselm, the Archbishop, instead asking another bishop to preside. With the potential claimant scheming in Normandy, Henry had the job of persuading the nation to take his side. One of his first actions to subdue the warring court inherited from his brother was to imprison its chief antagonist. Ranulph Lambard became the first ever prisoner in the Tower of London. Then, much to the satisfaction of the barons, he banned long hair at court. While this was easy to accomplish, Henry gave the strongest indication of his drift from a disdainful, bullish rule of his brother William Rufus with the Coronation Charter and the Charter of Liberties. Henry bound himself to the laws of England while pardoning enemies, ensuring peace, promoting diplomacy and protecting landowners. So powerful were the words they would become a precursor and model for Magna Carta a century later. Henry tasked Roger of Salisbury to found the Exchequer, the centralisation of royal power, and a far more efficient way of collecting and controlling the country's revenue. Henry also deployed royal judges to investigate crime and corruption, while affixing the royal seal upon local jurisdiction. Through this methodically engineered process, he had cemented his influence upon his people and sowed the seeds of bureaucracy. However prudent his methods were, brutality was never far from the surface. Under suspicion of forgery, the minters of England had their right hands chopped off as punishment. The king continued to consolidate England. While William the Conqueror hammered the Saxons into submission, Henry returned to them a fragment of sovereignty by marrying one, Matilda. She was the sister of King Edgar of Scotland and great-granddaughter of a Saxon king, Edmund. Matilda was a popular, pious queen who devoted her life to charity, building hospitals for the poor as well as roads and bridges. Unlike his brother, Henry had no qualms in producing an heir. In fact, his lust was legendary, producing over 20 children. However, only two were legitimate. 
Through the charter, Henry also made free the Church of God. He proclaimed, I abolish all the evil customs by which the Kingdom of England has been unjustly oppressed. The recalled Archbishop took his seat. However, the resolute Anselm would not bend so easily to comforting words. He refused to acknowledge royally appointed bishops and refused to pay homage to the new king. Henry negotiated by relinquishing the power of investiture to Anselm in return for his fealty. The church was at peace with the crown. Henry had secured the crown and his people were content. Henry of Huntingdon, the chronicler, said the king was made miserable by anxiety. Each of his triumphs only made him worry, lest he lose what he had gained. Henry was wise enough to know that in medieval Europe, trouble was never far away. It was within the walls of the Tower of London where it would begin. Legend has it, Ranulf Flambard enticed his guards with a flagon of wine. While they gladly guzzled, Ranulf waited for mental capacity to wane. He then used the rope, smuggled in the flagon, and escaped through a window. He made straight for Normandy and to Robert. He persuaded him to invade England. Edgar Etheling, who had accompanied Robert on the crusade, joined the invasion with his own ambition. They crossed the channel. Henry would not react with the gusto of his father or his brother. Instead, in Alton, in Hampshire, flanked by barons and the Archbishop Ansel, they negotiated a treaty. In a significant triumph for Henry, Robert renounced his claim in favour of the Duchy of Normandy and a pension. It is a tribute to the calm approach of Henry that no blood was shed and Flambard was allowed to peacefully retire in England. Henry knew that this deal would not survive. Robert was a highly reputable commander during the Crusades but was woefully inadequate at running a duchy. Soon Henry was being persuaded to liberate his brethren in Normandy. In 1105, he invaded Cayenne and Bayeux. In 1106, he returned for Rouen, Robert's domain. While Robert sent a party for negotiation, Henry proved that he did not always want a truce. In the Battle of Tonchebray, in 1106, Henry's force overwhelmed Robert's. So significant was the mauling. A second force, tasked with attacking Henry from the rear, turned and fled upon seeing the action. Robert was captured. Henry had regained Normandy, just like his brother and his father before him. Normandy and England were united under one ruler. Robert would spend the rest of his life imprisoned 
inside English castles. While he lived a life of relative opulence, when Robert did try to escape, Henry ensured he would not be able to again by burning his eyes out. Robert died in 1134, at the ancient medieval age of 83. The ever-present thorn in the side of the Norman kings of England, Edgar Etheling, was also captured at Tonchebury. Edgar Etheling had now been captured by all three Norman kings of England, the Conqueror, Rufus, and now Henry. He was spared every time due to his famous ability to talk himself out of trouble. He was set free once more. This time, he would finally be at peace. With Edgar Etheling died the last Saxon claimant to the English throne. One of Henry's key tactics was the arrangement of diplomatic marriages. William Adeline was married to the daughter of the Count of Anjou, and his daughter, also called Matilda, would be married to the Holy Roman Emperor. Known for his unquenchable lust, Henry holds the record as the monarch with the most acknowledged illegitimate children, over 20. But while illegitimate children of kings are often forgotten, Henry used them to his advantage by marrying them off to nobles and landowners in Brittany, Falaise, Perche, Fontevraud, Cornwall and Gloucester. Most of his children were incredibly loyal and served their king well. However, an illegitimate daughter, Julianne, and her husband Eustace of Fontevraud threatened to join a rebellion against Henry if they were not given the castle of Ivory. Henry decided to resolve the issue himself. They exchanged hostages with the son of the constable of Ivory taken to Fontevraud and the daughters of Julianne, the granddaughters of Henry, taken to Ivory. Eustace decided to act. He cut out the eyes of his hostage and sent him back. The constable of Ivory, quite understandably outraged, pleaded with Henry. The king ordered the blinding of his own granddaughters in retribution for the breach of trust. Julian and Eustace agreed to meet for a truce. However, Incensed by the blinding of her daughters, Julianne brought a crossbow. Upon meeting her father, she aimed, fired, missed, and ran. She escaped through a window, into a moat. Later, Julianne and Eustace begged for forgiveness, and were pardoned. While peace had been secured in England since 1101, and Normandy, since 1106. It was in Normandy tension was beginning to brew. It was rooted in the succession of the duchy. William Adeline was the king's choice. This was disputed by the current claimant, the son of Robert Curtos, William Cleto. While alone, 
he stood little chance. The new ambitious French king, Louis the Fat, supported Clito's claim. Henry, through his son William's diplomatic marriage in Anjou, had a base from which to attack. The Battle of Bremule was not pitched. The parties happened upon each other, with both kings of England and France, and both claimants, William Adeline and William Clito, joined by just a few hundred knights each. They did battle. Henry and William were victorious. The wording of the Battle of Bramule is perhaps erroneous and incredible that such a dispute was solved with an astoundingly low death toll of three. Louis formally acknowledged the successor of the vassal of France, the Duchy of Normandy, William Adeline, who proceeded to pay homage to Louis. In what was the greatest moment in the young prince's life, William and his father, Henry, had secured the future of the Norman realms. In 1120, in Barfleur, the family was due to return to England after a long period of consolidation in Normandy. William had every reason to celebrate, along with his half-siblings, cousins, lords and family friends, upon a glorious white ship in the sparkling bay of Barfleur, wine was poured and festivities began. King Henry, on another ship, set sail for England. The captain of the white ship, grandson of a veteran sailor of the Norman Conquest, was left a stark warning over the safe return of the white ship. I entrust to you my son, William, whom I love as my own life. The white ship was supposed to follow the kings, but such was the merriment, crew and passengers alike had a celebration. One cousin, Stephen, under the pretense of a stomach upset, left the party early and travelled back to England on board another ship, leaving the crew and passengers of the white ship to drink into the night. Finally the ship set sail to England. She flew swifter than a winged arrow, sweeping the rippling surface of the deep. She crashed. She crashed without leaving the harbour, straight into rocks. A gaping hole condemned the white ship. As the vessel plunged into the deep, the priority was to save the Ethelene, the prince, William. He was scrambled onto a lifeboat and made haste for the shore. However, William heard the screams of his half-sister as she drowned. It was more than he could bear. 
he turned back to save her. As he reached her, the desperate drowning young men and women jumped the lifeboat and it capsized. Opulent dress meant swimming was almost impossible, draped in heavy, sodden clothing. The prince was dead. Only one person survived, a butcher who wrapped himself in the skins of his rams, clung onto the dock wall and waited for dawn before swimming to shore. Henry of Huntingdon describes William Instead of wearing a crown of gold, his was broken by the rocks of a sea. It was a tragedy for the Norman dynasty, as huge numbers of Europe's elite perished. It was now someone's job to tell the king, who was enjoying his return to England. His lords argued over who should tell him. So fearful they were that they sent a young boy to break the news. It was said that the king never smiled again. Henry raced to produce a new heir. His wife Matilda had died a few years before. Henry, by 1120, was in his 50s, married an 18-year-old, Adelisa of Levan. However, despite his legendary ability to procreate, he couldn't produce a new heir. The desperate and aging king gave up. Upon the death of the Holy Roman Emperor in 1125, his only legitimate daughter, Matilda, was now a widow. Henry brought her home and presented her as his heir. A female monarch was unprecedented. Henry forced his barons and lords to pay homage and swear loyalty to Matilda as the heir and all her children upon Henry's death. To strengthen her claim, she was quickly married to Geoffrey Plantagenet of Anjou, a fiercely vibrant 15-year-old, not a match made from heaven for the 26-year-old former empress. The Plantagenet dynasty would soon dominate England for over 300 years. Matilda and Geoffrey produced a child to strengthen the claim further, Henry Plantagenet. However, a potential future of England in the hands of a queen did not go unnoticed as claimants lay in wait. Despite being, at the time, a ripe old age of 67, Henry was healthy and active when he went hunting in 1135 in Saint-Denis de Lyon, Normandy. Against the doctor's orders, he ate a surface of lampreys, a type of eel. He became ill, he deteriorated rapidly and died. In line with the strange tradition of poor treatment of the corpses of Norman kings, according to Henry of Huntingdon, his entrails, brain and eyes were buried together in Normandy, while his body would be transported to England. However, the journey was delayed for four weeks due to bad weather, 
His body, not bare to modern embalmment, was stabbed repeatedly with knives, copiously sprinkled with salt, and wrapped in ox hides to stop the pervasive stench which was said to have caused the death of the men guarding it. Eventually, the king was interred in Reading Abbey. The abbey was destroyed in the 16th century during the Reformation, and his grave was lost. A modern-day £3 million project, inspired by the finding of the remains of Richard III, was set up to find Henry, to no avail so far. Such was the unexpected death of Henry, Geoffrey Plantagenet, and his wife Matilda, the heir to the English throne, were in Anjou, with rebels quarrelling with the king's own army, delaying her return to England to claim the crown. Another man, a cousin, the very cousin who had escaped the white ship before its impending doom now the strongest male claimant, Stephen, made his way to England. Henry was a man far more astute to kingship than his brothers. His diplomacy was so effective that in his day no man dared harm another. As William of Malmesbury said, he preferred to contend by counsel rather than by the sword, but for all his guile, sexual pomp and political might, he succumbed to plain bad luck. The precarious future he left with a female heir plunged a country accustomed to peace and order into anarchy. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for your next monarch. Please follow us on Twitter at Kings Queens Pod and on Facebook at the Kings and Queens Podcast. See you next week.